Hi, my name is Will Stroll and I'm a partner at Pinsent Masons, an international law firm. In this series of podcasts, I'll be taking a brief look at the energy transition and what getting to net zero might look like, as well as looking at some of the challenges facing wind, solar and hydrogen. In today's podcast, I'll be taking a deepish dive into wind power, looking at the reasons for its rapid growth, the challenges facing developers and investors, and if there is time, its future. I'm excited to be joined today by Jerry Randall, the founder of Wind Pioneers, a wind energy consultancy. Jerry, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, good afternoon, Will. Really happy to be here. Um, yeah, so I, I'm Jerry. I've uh, uh, been working in the wind industry for uh, over just over 10 years now. So um, first, first got into the industry back when I was an undergrad studying aerospace engineering in, in the UK and did an internship one summer on the Isle of Wight for a uh, um, factory making blades for, for Vestas, um, which was a very interesting engineering uh, uh, challenge. They, they were using a combination of uh, carbon fiber and wood back in the days. Um, really interesting um, uh, experience. Uh, opened my horizons to the wind industry as a, a sort of modern, exciting, friendly uh, industry and, and really haven't looked back since. Um, so since I Graduated, I spent a year in, in China working for Goldwind, um, the Chinese manufacturer, um, and then after that spent a few years with what is now DNV, uh, was Gaurad Hassan when I, I joined it, so a, a technical consultancy looking at uh, bankable energy assessments. Um, so here in India, where I, I sit today, um, so I was based here for a couple of years, um, traveling to deepest, darkest corners of India, standing on, on hills and, and evaluating perspective sites for, for their energy yield. Um, and then I spent some time in, in Thailand uh, with the company as well. Um, and, and those experiences really sort of opened my eyes to wind in emerging markets. And uh, I think there's probably, you could argue whether India is an emerging market or not, it's probably not because it's really got into wind very early. Um, back in the early 90s, they were the first wind farms in India. Um, and ever since then, they've really grown the, the industry and it's a very mature um, domesticated uh, industry here, which means there's a lot of engineering expertise. Um, and India is already famous for, for its engineers. Um, and then in the wind industry, you've got that you know, long history of it. Um, then combined with my experiences in Southeast Asia, um, working in Thailand, I realized that a lot of brand new emerging, emerging markets don't have that same access to engineering talent and experience. Um, it's always a way if you've got a new industry and you're moving into a new market, that expertise doesn't, doesn't exist uh, uh, already. Um, you have to bring it in from somewhere um, and it's a question of where you bring it in from. Um, traditionally, the, the wind industry has been um, dominated by companies based in, in Europe and Australia and the US and, and other um, mature markets. Um, but those come with certain overheads and cost base. Uh, and it makes it more challenging to to do a lot of the um, sort of early flexible um, work that uh, wind farm projects need in, in the early days of their, their projects. So that was the idea behind Wind Pioneers. Yeah, great. Well, that's, I mean, it sounds like you've been in, in the industry for a long time. And as you mentioned, you know, some of the early blades that you're talking about being combined combinations of wood and sort of carbon fiber. And it you know, casts your mind back that you know, wind power is not a new technology. It's been around for sort of thousands of years. Um, and I just, whilst looking into this podcast, I saw that the first wind turbine for the production of energy was actually built in Scotland in 1887 um, and was used for the power of lighting. 
and the first multi-megawatt wind turbine was developed in 1978. But it's not really been until the 21st century that wind power has actually developed in its current format in the way that we've seen today. And it looks like the sort of current worldwide wind capacity is about 650 gigawatts worldwide, and that came from a base of less than 20 in 2000. So that's been a sort of phenomenal growth over the past 20 odd years. I mean, what sort of changes have you seen in the time that you've been involved in the industry? Yeah, it's interesting, especially looking back at the long history of playing around with wind for energy. Um, you know, even before electricity, obviously you had the sort of Dutch-style windmills. Um, and I think it, it took a century for uh, the wind industry to work out what the uh, preferred um, strategy was. Um, you know, and even in, in the 1990s, there were quite a lot of competing uh, approaches. You know, how many blades do you put on your turbine? You know, should it be a horizontal or a vertical axis? Um, and even since then, sort of people have played around with different different configurations. But but really, the the modern wind turbine, the horizontal axis, three bladed design, sort of emerged from the, the 1990s, I guess, um, as the preferred uh, strategy and and preferred configuration. Um, and since then, it, it's, a, it's a case of refining that uh, and keeping making um, steady improvements. And uh, particularly, uh, that is on the engineering of the size of the turbines. Um, so there's, there's quite a lot of advantages um, in terms of technology and, and cost in increasing the size of the turbines. Um, but these are also massive machines. So the engineering uh, of the loads and, and the structures is not straightforward. So uh, a lot of the work in, in the last 20 years um, is to do with just how you scale those turbines up, um, the, the machines themselves, but then also the sites and how do you scale up the size of the projects um, and how do you get these big machines onto the projects? Yeah, I mean, that's some of the key issues, I suppose. And I, and I guess some of the sort of technological advances as well have been some of the reasons that wind power, you know, the costs have fallen so rapidly over the last 20 years. And, and as well as that, as investors have become more comfortable with the technology, you know, the cost of capital has come down as well, which has allowed more and more um, projects to be developed and more sites to be developed. So it's, in a way, it's been a vir very virtuous circle. Is, um, wind power is not definitely the cheapest power. I mean, we've got solar out there, which, you know, is probably a lot cheaper and a lot easier to install. Um, yes. So what do we what are you seeing? You know, wind versus solar. Is that a rivalry or is that, you know, is it one or the other? How do you see these two as sort of complementary? Yeah, it's it's an interesting race, um, and at different points in time, different different technologies have, have been ahead or behind of each other. But um, you know, it's it, it, it's um, certainly true almost any market in the world now that either uh, wind or solar is the, the cheapest um, form of new energy. Um, a lot of places it's wind, some other places it's solar, depending typically on on the resources in, in that particular place. Um, but they're very complementary. Um, you know, the the bigger picture here is obviously a transition to, to renewables and, um, and and therefore, you know, we're not necessarily competing against each other. Uh, we're competing against the, the sort of uh, conventional um, power um, that, that's already on, on the grid or, or if there's new power to be built, you know, making sure that that's renewable. Um, and, and um, you know, we certainly see anywhere in the world these days that there's there's potential for for wind. Um, one of the big uh, areas of us, uh, progression in the last ten years is in low wind um, areas. So, uh, uh, wind pioneers were, were specialists in, in emerging markets, and in all of emerging markets uh, are not the windiest places in the world. 
Um, they are, are, are moderate wind speeds, um, but have a real demand for energy. Um, and, and the industry has been very good at adapting to these um, places and adapting the technology. Um, so you need to design your turbines slightly differently. If they're in lower wind places, you can, you can still get good capacity factors and good cost of energy, um, but you need a bit of a different balance between the size of your blades and the size of your generator and things like your hub height. And uh, needs to be tailored to, to these kind of markets. And that's happened, and that, that's one of the reasons uh, pretty much anywhere in the world now, uh, wind is incredibly cost competitive uh, and the prices just keep on going down. And I think what, what you said about it being a complementary technology to solar is really important. So, I mean, obviously, solar is limited to the, you know, to daylight hours, whereas wind runs throughout the night and is actually often windier at nighttime. So it's kind of the very complementary technologies with solar. And then some of the things you talked about with, uh, you know, low wind speeds and, you know, what would you say makes a good project from a wind aspect, especially in Southeast Asia or in sort of these emerging markets? Yeah, so there's two things as you know, when we're looking at prospecting and looking for new sites and, and new development opportunities, there's sort of two aspects to the wind. One is uh, what is the mean wind speed, the sort of uh, on a very basic level, you know, how much energy yield can you get out? And the second one is is then looking at the extremes and, and what happens in, in the worst case scenario when there's a big storm or a typhoon and, and you have to make sure your your turbine survive. Um, a lot of markets in in the world, if if you have a uh, if you have relatively low or, or modest um, mean wind speeds, it's it still can be a very economic um, uh, technology if if the extreme wind speeds aren't there. So Thailand is a perfect example of that, whereby um, Thailand doesn't feature um, extreme tropical storms. Um, they they blow themselves out before they get to Thailand. And therefore, you can design your wind farm in a very different way. You can have very high hub heights, you can have very big blades, um, and you can really sort of stretch your technology uh, without having to worry about the survivability in uh, in wind speeds that, for instance, in, in Europe or, or places in the mid latitudes around the world uh, really have to worry about. So it, it, it really is about sort of tailoring the, the technology to to the place you're looking at and and it's not as simple as to say that if there's um you know just a low average wind speed it, it's not um an appropriate technology because you can really adapt uh, the technology to the the market you're dealing with yeah i mean i suppose you know from the sort of non-wind aspects as well you know when you're looking at what makes a project bankable or, or is able to be financed i mean you're looking at kind of its overall regulatory uh process you're looking at its grid connection aspects will there be any government supports um, to what extent is there a kind of a favourable permitting regime and how easy is it to get all those permits in place? So there's a bunch of other factors which apply outside of just the straight wind factor. And it wouldn't necessarily be the case that just because there's a good strong wind, you know, you'll have the best project there. You know, another site with better factors on the development side might actually be a more um, sort of a cost effective site to locate the wind farm, I suppose. It, exactly, and and I see that as the next big step in in wind farm um, development and how we bring the economics down even further. You know, having worked um, for manufacturers and now on the development side of things, you know, the the technology is there. Uh, it's a, it's a sort of solved problem to a certain extent. It, it's very reliable. It's very efficient. It's it's very cost effective. The big manufacturers are really you know scraping tiny fractions of a percent of cost in in certain areas um to to make marginal improvements um the next big step is you know where do you put that turbine you know, once you've manufactured a, a very cost effective efficient 
turbine and it's one of the aspects of the wind industry that um that is so important that the wind is is very variable that if you put it at the top of a, a hill you can end up with with multiple times as much energy as you put it at the bottom of that same hill um and therefore the the challenge comes on to how do you uh, optimize where you put your projects and and that's a technical thing you know we've got to understand where the windiest places are and where the best yield is um but it's also very regulatory in in nature and, and very non-technical um you it interacts with a lot of other um uh fields of, of expertise and, and and whether that's regulatory or it's land availability or, or then looking at other challenges you know natural hazards or, or grid connection there's lots and lots of aspects to go into um a wind farm development um selection choice and, and what makes an optimum wind farm um and it's not it's nowhere near as simple as just picking the windiest place in the country um, that windiest place is very unlikely to be um, the best place for project development um, there's also all sorts of project challenges and risks associated often with uh, the windiest places so you're finding that balance um, uh, and that's the challenge you know you've got to get the wind aspects you've got to have enough yield you've also got to have it practically buildable um, and make sure that it's going to fit with with regulatory and, and permitting and, and be you know, cost effective I mean, and so having all that in mind, what are you seeing, you know, where, where are the hotspots for 2021? You know, which jurisdictions are, are currently, you know, investors looking to develop or where, where are the developers um, sort of actively scouting for opportunities now? Yeah, it, it's an interesting case. Uh, we, we work in, in emerging markets and, and there's almost no country in the world that we, we don't look at and, and see there to be opportunity um, at some point. There are hot markets um, because of the nature of the industry now and um, because the technology is there, um, the cost is there, you know, there's there's no shortage of investors wanting to invest into to wind farms because it gives you a great return on your investment um, because of the econo economics being so good. Then it moves on to the, the sort of government and regulatory aspect and, and that shifts between between markets and and you'll see in Southeast Asia a good example is is you know all three examples I'd give is sort of Thailand Philippines and, and Vietnam which have all seen sort of spikes in in development um, at, at certain points um, Thailand and Philippines a few years ago you know they both followed a bit of a lull you know as the regulatory environment changed and it became harder to to get developments bill you know vietnam is in is in that peak at the moment there's a there's a tariff regime coming to an end the end of this year um everyone is uh is busy um getting getting steel in the ground and, and getting turbines up and, and there's a huge amount of capacity going into vietnam um this year uh, and then it's a bit more uncertain and, and it depends on on how the, the regulatory outlook looks in in future um and it really does shift the sort of focus of the industry to that that side of things um, i think if you looked 10 15 years ago you needed governments to put hard money behind wind farms um you know a lot of uh, you know project uh, tariffs and and public money uh, was having to go into wind farms to make them viable that's not so much the case these days it's, it's much less about economics it's much more about how you create a pathway to allow developers and investors to invest their money um in wind farms in a way which is you know obviously acceptable returns and acceptable risks um and that, that's almost a more difficult problem um you know it's not one you can just throw money at it's sort of really tricky to to work out you know how do you sometimes it's the case of how do you get governments you know just to clear the way and allow it to happen um, because naturally uh, the fundamentals are so good these days. 
Well, I think that's that's a yeah, really good point. I mean, uh, and one of the big things that we've seen is that where governments have introduced high tariffs, you know, like the ADA scheme um, in Thailand and like the current feed-in tariff for Vietnam, this has led to kind of quite a large boom in that particular renewable source, be it wind or solar, at that particular time. And then the question, of course, is how do you sustain that when you remove those subsidies and, and feed-in tariffs? So we're seeing now in certain jurisdictions where they've had successful feed-in tariffs in the past, but they're now looking... How can they change the environment, the, the regulatory environment to achieve sustainable growth in sort of the renewable energy industries? Um, and, and that will be some of the challenges that we see. And, and, and part of that is the sort of, you know, wider issues, you know, upgrades to the grid or is it deregulation of the energy market? Um, you know, removal of red tape, removal of permits or just making the whole process a lot more streamlined. So I expect now, you know, that will be the areas that we start to see governments really taking a focus on. Um, and perhaps starting to move away from the feed and tariffs and start to move towards reverse tariff auctions like they have in Europe and, and other jurisdictions. But, yeah, yeah I, I think it's a, a super tough question to answer. I, I don't think uh, it's solved that problem of how do you create a, a wind market in a new new country. Um, you, you can't simply go in uh, with, a, with a sort of auction system um, because as a developer, if you're entering a new market, the risks are very substantial and you can really only justify, um, you know, spending your money and, and investing your, your time and efforts and, and, and capital in a market if there's some sort of uh, certainty as to what, what you get at the back end of that, um, you know, and, and that typically needs to be a tariff, a fixed tariff. Um, and once you've got a fixed tariff, the developer can can work backwards from that and work out whether it's it's achievable. So when when producing new markets, and, and I guess I'd give an example of Indonesia as, as an example where there isn't a fixed tariff across the, the country um, and developers don't have that visibility going in as to what electricity price they'll get coming out of the development cycle. Um, and therefore, it's much, much harder for developers to really commit to a market like that. Uh, on the flip side, um, you know, you when you've got that tariff in place, you've a, you've got to set it right. You've got to set it so it's not so high that it, it limits how much you can can uh, buy with your your, your investment. Um, but but also not not too low that it, it, it puts off developers. Um, and then once you've got got a, a bit of an established market, um, it's a question of how you move on from there. Um, Vietnam is just at that point at the moment where the tariff has been in a place and then they've sort of edged it down over a few years and, and they edged it, you know, sort of edged it up over a few years and edged it to a point where it suddenly became attractive, particularly with wind prices going down. And then the question then is, is what do you do as second, you know, third, fourth uh, round of that? Um, India is a good example where it shows you that if you do go to reverse auctions at some point, you can see electricity prices come down substantially um, but that only really works when you've already got a mature market and, and developers uh, are aware of the, the challenges and the risks and, and costs of doing business um, and, and construction in a, in a market. Um, judging that, that uh, transition um, from, from fixed prices to, to auctions um, is very, very difficult. A lot of countries have, have maybe not done it optimally but it's because it's such a difficult thing to do um, uh, and it's it's not surprising that it's it's sometimes more efficient than others. I mean, and what we haven't touched on yet, and just good to touch on briefly, is kind of the prospects for offshore wind down to Asia. So we've seen, you know, the, the success in Taiwan, and it looks like that's triggered a wave of 
of enthusiasm for offshore wind across Asia. So we're seeing the feed-in tariffs out in Vietnam at the moment. It'll be interesting to see how many of those reach COD by the, I think, the, 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 the required phase. But, you know, we're seeing sort of new markets and new enthusiasm for that out on offshore in Korea, Japan as well. Um, so, so what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one. And uh, Wind Pioneers, we, uh, as a company, we, we're getting more and more involved with, with the offshore um, side of things. The, the opportunity is just massive and it's, it's clear uh, why people are excited about it. Um, it comes with challenges as well, though. Um, you know, the main the main opportunity in Asia with offshore, from from where I I sit anyway, um, is basically how difficult land uh, is onshore in in Asia. Um, so you look at any of the the emerging markets, and to secure uh, a, a large tract of um, attractive land for an onshore wind farm is difficult, and it, it's associated with um, challenges and costs, and just takes a, a long time to do and particularly um, then limits uh, the scale of your projects. Now, if you can do it, onshore wind is, is by far the cheapest sort of wind and, and will be for, for decades to come. Um, uh, but the attraction of offshore is at scale and the idea that um, if you can get a project to work, uh, you can put a gigawatt here, a gigawatt there and really build up very quickly um, the capacity. Then it's a question of you know, is the technology um, ready for it? And, and we look at somewhere like Taiwan, um, wind speeds are pretty similar to what you'd get in Europe. Um, building conditions are pretty similar. Um, there's a bit of an existing offshore uh, industry and infrastructure. And therefore, uh, it's a perfect case um, for the offshore industry. And, and that's exactly what's happening there. Um, if we move to Southeast Asia, I, I think there's bigger questions over the, the technology. The, the wind speeds are not as high as, as you would get in in Taiwan or, or Europe, um, and therefore you need uh, turbines to be developed for those more moderate wind speeds. Um, that doesn't yet happen. You don't yet have uh, uh, offshore wind turbines with the very big capacities, sort of eight, 10 plus megawatt capacities designed for wind speeds, which are more, more moderate. The other challenges are often the better wind speeds in Southeast Asia are coinciding with deeper water. Um, and therefore, uh, you probably need to look at something like, like floating um, technology in order to bring, bring those projects um, to fruition. Uh, and then it's a, a sort of a betting game. You know, is, are those technology steps five years away? Are they 10 years away? Are they 15 years away? Um, you know, no one's got an answer. Everyone's got a, a, an idea. Um, and I think that will really drive you know, how much offshore wind um, takes off in a lot of these countries. And, and it's great to see there's a lot of interest um, in, in a lot of these markets, be it sort of um, Philippines or, or Vietnam or, or even um, places like Indonesia uh, for, for offshore projects. Um, but much less certain uh, as to how how it gets deployed compared with onshore, where fundamentally the technology is is already there and, and ready to be deployed. And it's just a question of, of getting over the, the, the development hurdles um, and building as quickly as possible. So a very different set of challenges, you know, offshore and onshore. I think, I mean, one of the points you mentioned as well is just the ability to develop utility scale infrastructure for offshore wind, which makes it quite exciting, um, especially to institutional investors who are looking for sort of large bankable projects with, you know, a, a sustainable revenue stream. So just being able to commit, you know, like you say, a gigawatt here or a gigawatt there is is much more attractive than the sort of more smaller piecemeal approach we've seen, especially across Southeast Asia, where 
land issues are are quite um, land can be quite scarce in certain jurisdictions. Um, so you know, what, what, sort of crystal ball time. What's your the final word? What's the future for wind? What do you think? Oh, good, <laughs> windy. Um, no, I, I, it's only going to go in, in in one direction at this point, right? So the cost of wind continues to to decrease onshore, offshore. Um, you know, the the markets, uh, emerging markets all over the world, um, keep increasing. Uh, as a company, we're regularly looking at countries. You know, be it you know Cambodia, Myanmar. Angola, Tanzania, all sorts of markets that we do work in where there, there aren't any wind farms as of today, um, that's going to change, um, you know, within within a few short years, um, you know, that, that will change very quickly because the fundamentals are there. Um, the the question is is how quickly it will happen and, that, and that's the, the the big doubt at the moment and from from where i sit uh, at times that's that's a little frustrating when you see that you have a solution in hand you have the technology to solve the problem that we need to solve um it's cost effective it's ready to be deployed at scale um it's i think the whole industry is just jumping at the bit to to roll out um uh, that technology in these markets as quickly as possible and hopefully uh you know that will be that will be quick um you know the the climate needs it to be quick um and and the building blocks are all there ready to be put together um uh, it's just a, a betting game as to to um you know how quickly these countries are able to to you know, align their their processes for for wind development to to make sure that those um turbines get put in the ground uh, as quickly as possible and as big a scale as possible yeah no i'd fully agree with that and i think you know key to that is just um really having a focus by governments to change and you know and revise the regulatory landscape and just the permitting regimes and just to make it as smooth as possible um just to allow the sort of the swifter deployment of, of the funds that are out there uh well that, that's all we've got time for um i just want to say thank you very much jerry for joining us on this podcast it's been a real pleasure talking to you and um yeah thank you very much if you have found this podcast interesting then please look out for my other podcasts on getting to net zero solar power and hydrogen power thanks once again to jerry randolph and wind pioneers for joining me i'm will stroll and thanks for tuning in